To be. Or not to be. That, that is, is the question. question. What we seek in story is the knowledge of death that's close to us in our own lives. We say we are such and such, and yet everything we do seems to betray the fact that that's not the case. And like bad weather, things go wrong between humans. <laughs> in this episode of the podcast, we're going to take another plunge into the deep meanings of the to be or not to be speech. This time to try to find out what it tells us about our own psyches, our own divided and contradictory personalities. Is there any purpose in asking ourselves the biggest questions of life? What is this mystery at the heart of existence? What is life and what is, what is life and death? I think this erupted with the coronavirus. I think real questions about what counts as life and what counts as death and how do we understand death and how do we make room for it? We know that these questions are fundamentally unanswerable. So are there any consolations which the search can bring us? Oh, I mean, these are, these are, these are very deep questions. The basic idea is that your history, your life of lived pleasures and suffering, that you take that and you somehow create an object out of it and that it will provide for others who will recognize themselves in it some space to think about their own lives. Something happens to us. If we go to a good performance of, of Hamlet, we come out absolutely drained but also satisfied somehow very hard to understand that for who would bear the whips and scorns of time the oppressor's wrong the proud man's contumely the pangs of despised love We're going to explore these huge questions by speaking to three people immersed in the thoughts and writings of Sigmund Freud and his successors. Freud has fallen out of fashion now, and many of his most controversial theories have come under sustained attack. But concepts like the mysterious power of the unconscious and the importance of our primal relations with our first caregivers are still widely considered essential and have permeated Western culture. For someone who you think you know it, you think you you think you've got the story, you've got the gist, but it's much it's much stranger, it's much deeper than that. Dr. Jameson Webster is a psychoanalyst and co-writer of a book on Hamlet with the philosopher Simon Critchley. She finds it remarkable that it was while thinking of Hamlet that Freud first started to develop his ideas over a hundred years ago. Well, it's kind of wonderful. I mean, like in in the interpretation of dreams, which is the first, you know, sort of most important work that Freud writes, he invents the Oedipus complex. It's, it's the first time that it appears. Um, and it's actually in the section on the dreams of, of the death of persons of whom one is fond. And Freud talks about wanting to kill your father and sleep with your mother, something that you want as a young child. You want full possession of the object and you'll do whatever it takes to get it. And that's something that then is repressed. So when you dream of the death of someone whom you're fond, you're, you're going back to these early childhood wishes. In that section where he talks about this, he then goes to Hamlet and he says, Hamlet is, it, it's actually, you know, Oedipus is, is the wishes that are repressed, but Hamlet is the true modern character who you don't see him commit the act of incest or patricide, you see him not do it. 
but you don't understand why he doesn't do it. He doesn't do it, Freud says, because it's repressed. His, the wish is repressed in his unconscious and getting close to it at all um, is too difficult. You, all you see is a kind of symptomatic, neurotic <laughs> kind of cloud erupt. And because you can't reconcile yourself with what you wanted, you then sabotage all capability at that point, which is fundamentally what neurosis is. So it's amazing because at the birth of psychoanalysis is this question of the ancient tragedy that's rewritten by Shakespeare into modern neurotic form. And this is where Freud begins the entire adventure. The Oedipus complex is deeply contested now, but Professor Peter Brooks thinks it's still a valuable path into the mind of Hamlet. I think Freud's view of Hamlet is actually quite persuasive. He's unable to kill Claudius because in some sense he is bound up with Claudius, right? He's identified with him. The fact that Claudius has already realized Hamlet's most unconscious, repressed, and forbidden wishes, right, of killing the father. And this impossibility of a situation get expressed in to be or not to be, right? That the only, the only way out is through um, extinction of the self. So does Jameson Webster literally believe Hamlet is in the grip of an Oedipus complex? But I do. <laughs> I do. I do. I do. In fact, I have never seen a more incestuous scene than in that scene with his mother in the chamber. He gets alarmingly close also because he doesn't understand what he's up to so that he could, you know, put the proper distance between himself and a wish. He wants to separate his mother from this man that he hates. He wants to take vengeance on his father's murder. He has two ones that add up to zero in the play. Why should that be? He's got two impetuses to carry through on the action that he needs to carry through, and yet it, it amounts to a leveling. Um, so the question of action was kind of central to Freud's question, actually, which was, was why can't Hamlet do what he needs to do? Well, the idea was that something, there must be some inhibition based on, on repression, based on something in his unconscious. In his To Be or Not To Be speech, Hamlet faces the choice of living, to be, or not living. And his thoughts are informed by an overwhelming longing for the release brought about by death to die, to sleep no more, and by a sleep to say we end the heartache and the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to. It is a consummation devoutly to be wished. The soliloquy seems to enact a fundamental psychological split which Freud thought is common to all of us. Freud thought all of us are just as tall as Hamlet that we are all hopelessly conflicted by two contradictory impulses. A drive for life and a drive for death. He called it Eros the pleasure principle and Thanatos the death drive. The pleasure principle, the idea that we're all motivated by our desires and wishes for fulfilment and pleasure came first. But personal tragedy and the horrors of the First World War led Freud to darken and complicate this idea. You know, his original idea, which came from his studies as a doctor and I think kind of accepted ideas of medicine, was that the body is trying to achieve homeostasis. 
Um, and the pleasure principle would be that, would be that if there's a frustration, then there's the seeking for some kind of satisfaction or fulfillment that would bring things back to a quiescent state. And, you know, you can read a lot of the early works as kind of working around that basic idea, even in the idea of dreams that we go to sleep and um, the frustrations of the day kind of create a dream that is the hallucinatory fulfillment of a wish. It allows us to keep sleeping and then we can wake up sort of restored with like the balance, um, the balance kind of restored to us. And it was after World War One, um, but also notably the death of his daughter Sophie to the Spanish flu, um, that he developed an idea that that he didn't really think that that was quite the case. That there was something in the human um, that that didn't really seek <laughs> for balance, <laughs> that didn't really even the playing field, and that kind of went beyond itself. And that it sought almost a return, not just to homeostasis, but to non-being, to death, to um, or even our own self-destruction. And that culture, um, neuroses, sickness, group psychology, all of these things were there trying to harness this demonic kind of situation, <laughs> trying to give it some form, give it some shape, give it some way of existing and not destroying itself immediately, but that the balance was incredibly tenuous. And at the end of um, the important work, Civilization and its Discontents, um, he said he really doesn't know what will win. He doesn't know whether Eros or the death drive will win out in the end. Um, and that if he looked at civilization, it's, it's really a rather unclear. The concept of the death drive surfaces in some of English literature's greatest moments, such as John Keats's description of himself as half in love with easeful death, or Philip Larkin. Beneath it all, desire for oblivion runs. Professor Richard Jacobs. I think the idea of just wanting things to stop does make a lot, lot of sense. The idea that we're on this machine-like or conveyor-belt-like process does give some sort of psychic justification for the idea of just Freudian idea of the organism just wanting to stop, wanting to, to wind down. Great essays like Beyond the Pleasure Principle um, are perhaps where the best of Freud lies. And that's Freud as a kind of literary critic. I think even in the idea of going back to the womb or going back to before origins becomes in Freud's mind at a certain point a denial of life. So then it becomes crazy. It becomes not just, you know, something natural like the, you know, a, like a physical principle or an anatomical principle of balance, um, but becomes a kind of madness in the human being if, if one's trying to go back to something before or trying to rush ahead to the point of death when there won't be any um, troubles and anxiety anymore. I mean, you know, that would just be a, a complete erasure of, of reality. And many people talk about this moment when Freud um, had to kind of contend with the idea that we weren't, we didn't, we didn't all really have the grip on reality that he was hoping. <laughs> you know, you got kind of pleasure, frustration, assessment of reality, action, you know, and that this would be like a nice model of how the psychic mind works. And then, you know, the, the model unhinges itself post-World War One. The idea is not just a half-repressed desire for the fever and the fret of life to be over, 
It's also the ever-present human capacity to sabotage ourselves, to defeat our own stated purposes and best interests. We are so divided against ourselves. We say we want to live. We say we are invested in life. And yet, everything proves to the contrary. We say we are such and such. And yet, everything we do seems to betray the fact that that's not the case. So the the this movement in, I don't know, modernity, I guess, is to really show how divided we are between what we say and think and what we show by our actions um, and by our, our, our worlds that we create. Shakespeare in Hamlet, in the first time in his career, um, seems to have almost by accident stumbled across the idea, which is an extremely modern idea, of consciousness itself as a kind of burden not just conscience as a burden, which we get in a character like Claudius, but consciousness itself. Um, and I think that's that's why Harry Levin in his great book on Hamlet from 1959 is so persuasive when he analyzes the speech as a series of doubting dichotomies uh, with divisions in consciousness producing further subdivisions that go around in a kind of flow chart of, of negativity. There's a kind of universal sense in which Hamlet is voicing a kind of doomed process inherent in consciousness itself. We can also see Hamlet's psychology in the light of Freud's follower, Jacques Lacan, who foregrounds the relationship with the mother. The first moment of trauma for any infant, he said, is the inevitable separation from its mother. The infant starts off with the sense that the universe consists of just one thing, which is a kind of unified object comprising the mother and the child. The fact that the infant has to go through a wounding separation, a kind of wounding series of separations from the mother that leads to, you know, all the kind of unhappinesses that Lacan writes about. There's a sense in, in which Hamlet has never really moved out of that original Lacanian sense that the world consists of himself plus his mother. Um, because what his mother has in his eyes done is to disrupt finally and make a, a terrible break with that consoling sense of oneness that the whole world is just himself and his mother. The only reason that we have a sense of self or even a representational capacity in Freud is because we lose the thing in reality. So the only reason that we have an internalized idea of mother, let's say, is because mother goes away. And so it's only, if she was always there, we wouldn't have to set her up inside of ourselves as something to turn to. But in turning to that memory of mother, we already realize that it's it's because she's not there. And so everything in the mind, everything in the structure of the personality, everything in our attempts at identity and unity and recuperation are founded on a loss that goes all the way down. The idea that it's very, very difficult for us to process loss, destruction, death, um, more than it is happiness or pleasure, which in any case are fleeting, but are there to be had. And Freud can't make this good. He can't, he wants to make it good. I mean, even thinking the original idea of the pleasure principle, he was trying to make good on it <laughs> and he couldn't. And at a certain point he said, okay, well, then this is what I've learned. It seems a bleak worldview as bleak as Hamlet's soliloquy renouncing life. 
Sigmund Freud spoke of an elusive concept called sublimation. The idea that we can transform our suffering into something creative and positive. Well, I think Freud believed in sublimation. Um, he thought it was rare and he thought not everyone was capable of it because it, it, it required great delays and um, satisfaction. But I thought that he, I think he thought that that was the best that one could do. He didn't have great hope in love. Um, he thought that that was putting a lot of eggs in one basket, which he said he saw too many people do. And, and like bad weather, things go wrong between humans. <laughs> um, and, you know, he thought that there was pleasure in repetition, botany, scientific inquiry. But the idea that somehow this this death drive, everything that you've inherited from your history, that you could transform that into something artistic and useful to another human being was the most that we could do. But the basic idea is that your history, your life of lived pleasures and suffering, your own death-drivenness, um, that you take that and you somehow create an object out of it, whether that's a symphony, whether that's a novel, whether that's a new form of painting, whatever it may be, and that it will provide for others who will recognize themselves in it some space to think about their own lives. And he said that what was important for him about sublimation was that even though it takes a long time to produce a work like that, the satisfaction that it provides to the person once they complete it is as real, he says, as sexual satisfaction. <laughs> it sounds very Freudian, but he really meant it that way. He meant that it, it really provides a full source of satisfaction. It's not stuck in repression or defense or denial of reality, that it really is the kind of full expression of the contents of one's self. You can see why Shakespeare was so important to him in this respect, you know, and I think he, he wondered how someone could produce what Shakespeare was capable of producing. You have to you have to create somehow an object of desire that is aesthetic somehow. I mean it it's some both recognition of the world but also turning away from it that that sublimates this pain um, into something culturally valuable. Peter Brooks believes that a complex work of fiction like Hamlet satisfies both our desire for pleasure and our desire for an end to the narrative. Because just as in our own lives, it's only in knowing the end that a narrative can make sense. When we look at narratives, for instance, fictions, we, we enter them very much impelled by the pleasure principle. And that's what drives us forward in our desire for reading. But that desire for reading is also in some strange sense a desire for the end. Because it's at the end that everything comes together, everything uh, is elucidated, uh, which in a sense is is a sad moment to arrive at. It is a kind of death, but it's one that uh, should throw some sort of illumination on the desires that, that brought you to that end. I, I would also add to this Walter Benjamin's uh, essay on the storyteller, where he says that what we, what we seek in story is the knowledge of death that's close to us in our own lives. We don't know how our lives will end and what the meaning of our lives in retrospect will be. And that's why we, we want to read about the death of a fictional character um, in terms of how life as a whole, looking at it in retrospect from the point of death backwards makes sense. 
Uh, I mean, these are these are, these are very deep questions, but I think it it surely has something to do with um, our our facing up to what we can't face up to in our own lives. I mean, there's no way we can know our own deaths. There's no Freud says we can't even imagine our own deaths, or you know, um, it's always in dreams. It's always a death that really isn't a death. We come back from it. So I think we we we. We want to face up to the ultimate horror of death um, in fictions. And uh, Aristotle said this was somehow cathartic for us. Uh, and I'm not sure if that's the right word. You know, there's a purgation of terror and pity, but certainly um, something happens to us. If we go to a good performance of, of Hamlet, we come out absolutely uh, drained, but also satisfied somehow. Very hard to understand that. For Richard Jacobs, Shakespeare's plays work on us so strongly precisely because they don't provide simple reassurances. The simple answer is is that um, uh, it can make us un understand ourselves as more complex. I think the, the, the um, temptation to think of ourselves as simple is, is something that, you know, as simple mechanisms or simple organisms is is something that is that is culturally really important to 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 resist, and I think if if we instead uh, are given the opportunities through literature of of seeing ourselves as as subject to dynamic um, processes of 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 change and and uh, conflict and tensions that make up a much more kind of complex picture then um you know then that will that will make us more kind of open to complexities in other people and complexities in other cultures um and make us perhaps more um able to relate in, in a more uh kind of empathetic way in the way where we relate to someone like hamlet these things that we would think of as essentially human are kicked off in 1600 with hamlet in the end any examination of the deepest themes contained in to be or not to be has to be doomed to failure the search for meaning must have its limits when it comes up against the unchangeable facts of all our existence it's interesting there's a psychoanalyst named um julia Kristeva. Uh, she's French. She's the sort of student of Jacques Lacan. Um, and she talks about melancholia. And I think melancholia is very important for understanding Hamlet as um, the violence of meaning making. To make everything have to convey meaning and to question on the level of meaning. Whereas, you know, to a certain extent, life is meaningless, but that doesn't mean there's not things that we do or things that we enjoy or decisions that we make for ourselves or ethical practices that we decide to engage in. But the the melancholic wants to grind life down into the question of meaning itself. Um, and I sometimes think of Hamlet that way. I think of there's this kind of the violence with which he asks some of these questions relentlessly without stopping. Um, and that's also how we get kind of drawn into his orbit and his dare I say, death drive. There's no end to meaning and questioning. At what point will that stop and become readiness? Reality is something that from the very beginning we, we instinctively turn away from. 
whether it's mortality, whether it's the reality of sexuality, whether it's the limits to enjoyment, but none of this do we want to see. We want to see something else. And so when we do see it, we're either horrified or we're disgusted or some combination of both. And the question becomes, well, what am I even supposed to do? What is any of this for? Why bother? As a psychoanalyst herself, Jameson counsels against the idea that analysis can be a sure and easy way to find definitive answers. It's not to be confused with self-help therapy. I, I really think we've entered into this like wellness world where the idea is kind of happiness and, um, you know, so that every difficulty in life is, is an outrage um, to be subdued versus this question of speaking about it in a way that transforms it into something that just seems like a fact or even like destiny <laughs> um, and could give you courage in the face of it then. More, more courage. I mean, and that's certainly Hamlet's question, right? It's this question of courage that he doesn't have. It's about courage. At the places where we don't have answers versus, um, you know, wanting to have all the answers at hand. You know, they come with some desire to know. They imagine that you have some special knowledge and that starts the game of beginning to speak about their life. And you know, there's a, there's a voracious tendency to kind of narrativize and explain and understand and uh, try to predict and make sense of and create action plans and goals. But part of what starts to happen in analysis is that this effort falls apart and you, um, I don't know, I guess, acquaint yourself with that, that, that ending, that death. Um, and I think more and more and more in analysis, in a way, it's, it's the falling away of the tight narrative that one wants. It's interesting. I mean, it's both, these are the significant things and this is your story and this is what you thought were the significant things and this is what you thought was your story and here's where that breaks down and it doesn't mean that we can necessarily fill it in at this point. I, the last book I wrote, not the Ham, the one after the Hamlet book, was about why be a psychoanalyst. It's too painful. So I am asking myself that question. One, I think it's very painful to be an analyst given what you have to do to yourself in your own analysis. And then you have to ask this question, why then would you do it with somebody else? That seems madness. <laughs> so I do kind of start from there. And I don't know that I answer the question per se, except to say I do think in giving room to the idea of speaking um, about this rather than trying to pursue something that goes in the opposite direction, you do find some salve. Um, although I, I, I feel even remiss saying that because in a way the, the ethos of analysis is, is to stare, um, to stare what's not there directly in the face. I think it is, I think it is aloneness and I think it is death. Um, and I, I think sexuality also kind of brings that to bear. I mean, there is something about enjoyment that's can be shared, but is also very alone because it's it's your enjoyment in your body in relationship to your memories and your pleasure. And, you know, you can communicate some of that to another person or they can participate in it, but it is yours alone. And we really struggle with this day in and day out, I think. Um I mean, even just waking up sometimes is difficult because you wake up and it's an act you do alone. You think, where am I? What day is it? What do I have to do today? And you, know, you have to put on all this armature to get yourself going. 
I don't know, to acquaint yourself with the nothing. I mean, it, it seems nihilistic or even existentialist, but I think there's a, a making friends with it that you do over the course of of analysis and, and that there isn't a lot of place for that in the world, except I do think in art. I think if you go to a therapy, not psychoanalysis, you'll get a lot of very comforting messages. I think if you go to church, you'll also get comforting messages. You might get hell and damnation, but you'll get some other comforting messages. And I think um, we, we, we try to um, not participate in that. It's the kind of paradoxical Freudian lesson. I mean, one often thinks of Freud as the one who, you know, will pull the curtains back on the kind of meaning of your life and, you know, whatever the kind of unconscious grid. But I also think there's another part of, I think there's a version of Freud that's very different. I mean, he says in Mourning and Melancholia, does one have to be this sick to know the truth? Meaning the melancholic who, you know, sees through the veil of illusions and then he says, I think to wonder about the meaning of life is to be neurotic. I remember I had this funny story, this this very esteemed French psychoanalyst friend of mine had a patient and he was worried about his father. The father had lost the, the mother and was um, not sleeping and, you know, kind of day and night got flipped and, and he brought he brought his father to see his former psychoanalyst and he said that he went to the sun and he said, get him a dog. And the guy, the guy said, what? And he said, he said, get him a dog. He'll, he'll walk the dog during the day. He'll have a companion. It'll help him kind of like get onto a schedule. It'll give him some structure. And he said, you don't think that he needs psychoanalysis. And he said, he's not asking this question about, you know, whether his life was meaningful or meaningless and what mistakes he made and what he's guilty of and what debt he has to pick back and all of the illusions that he, <laughs> he said, he's not asking this question. He doesn't need to go into analysis. And I, I thought it was very, when I first heard it, I thought I was sort of angry. I said, why not give someone this opportunity? But he meant it very seriously. Like, you have to you have to want to do this project. But I also think people should be given the choice, you know, <laughs> since it is something that's there and it's a, it's a profession now that's over 100 years old. So During the first coronavirus crisis in New York, Jameson volunteered to work in the hospital wards, talking with the families of the dying. I did. I worked in palliative care in the in the beginning of the coronavirus. Um, but I think it is this question of the what is what is this mystery at the heart of existence? What is life and what is what is life and death? Um, and you know, I think this erupted with the coronavirus. I think real questions about what counts as life and what counts as death, and how do we understand death, and how do we make room for it, and what do we do uh, to prevent it. And then I watched the world try to paper it over, to try to turn it into statistics, to try to hide it away, um, to pretend that it's not happening, which is certainly happening here. Um, but there was a moment in which, you know, you thought, oh, my God, <laughs> we're, we're in the middle of a, a virus. And then um, so I, I when I went into the hospital, I, I wanted to be closer to this reality of what was happening and to help. I think it's my job as a doctor. Um, but I'm also, I'm also very, very sad that um, it really, in a Hamlet way, the, the funeral meets have become some kind of wedding feast. And maybe with the election of Biden, we're going to come back down to reality. But something very strange happened in the United States with this 
you know, pretending as if the virus wasn't happening to the tune of 10 million cases. Although Freud has been out of fashion, Jameson believes the events of the Trump years has brought him back to try to explain the apparently inexplicable. Strangely, with the election of Trump, where we had to sort of ask a question of why we had brought a man like this to power um, and all of our enjoyment in trying to take him down, I think Freud has become fashionable again. <laughs> I haven't seen so many Freudian articles like in, in popular culture in, in this long. But, you know, the, the question of our relationship to the king with these kingly figures. So, I mean, I also, I think Hamlet will make a resurgence um, in the coming, in the coming time. And also a, a president who uh, has created a situation where we cannot grieve death. So I think this will, um, I think this will become important. And one of the theses of Freud would be that we cannot mourn or grieve death because we cannot reconcile ourselves with our own murderous impulses. So if we cannot look at this squarely in the face and get disgusted and horrified by it, then we will repeat it in violent fashion, which we've just seen in the United States. He felt that it was civilization's job, or so he hoped, to give room to the individuality and singularity of each person's difficulty with their relationship to pleasure and reality. And that when a civilization failed to do that, people started to get sick and they also started to move into problematic political formations. <laughs> and, you know, he, he basically said that a civilization can become deathbound. This podcast was started in the depths of the coronavirus lockdown. And the contributors all agreed to take part because they wanted to raise awareness for theatres and for actors at a time of crisis due to pandemic, to rolling lockdowns and social distancing. If you want to help, theatres like The Globe have donation pages you can visit and special fundraisers have been set up during lockdown. If you visit the podcast website, you can find some links. Finally, special thanks go to Emma Fielding and Simon Paisley Day, who recorded versions of the speech at home during lockdown. And thanks too to Chris Dyer, Paul Sem and Hannah Fiore. And thanks too to Chris Dyer, to Paul Sen, to Hannah Fiore for their invaluable help and support. Soft you now. The fair. Ophelia, for their nymph in thy orisons, be all my sins remembered.